The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, the growth stock sell-off continues. As a proxy, Kathy Wood's ARK ETF fell 20% into a technical bear market as shares of companies like Tesla continue to head lower. The Nasdaq 100 is now down 10% from a high. And this, of course, as rates continue their trek higher. How long can it last? We'll discuss. And uh, Sarah, I'm afraid what we also have to discuss uh, on this very special episode of What Goes Up is... My embarrassing high school nickname. Uh, if you can't tell, Mike is really excited <laughs> about this. But look, Mike, you did this to yourself. Mike, a couple of episodes ago said, look, if we get 200 ratings on Apple Podcasts, that he would go out and he would dole out his embarrassing <laughs> high school nickname. He should have set the bar higher. But uh, all of our listeners are clearly very loyal and everyone more than anything wants to know your nickname. Um, so you delivered. You I, delivered. <laughs> I do. I, I, mispri- I mispriced this trade terribly. I thought 200 ratings. We'll never get there. I'm safe. But uh, but thank you for everyone who listened and, and left a rating. It's uh, means a lot to us. You know, Sarah and I have a lot of various duties at Bloomberg, but I think um, this this show is our baby. And uh, we have we look forward to it every week. And it's it's good to see people, uh, you know, uh, listening and, and rating and reviewing, regardless of how much pain it may cause me. Actually, Sarah, I it's been kind of therapeutic for me because um I've I've hated this nickname for 35 years, but I've kind of come to terms with it uh, through this whole. And I'll explain why at the end of the show when, when we get to that nickname. Got to stick around. Because although uh, there are some who are listening only to hear my embarrassing high school nickname, I think more <laughs> people are listening because uh, we know we have a tradition here of having excellent, uh, smart expert guests to explain the week in the markets. And once again, we are uh, very excited to have a guest who's going to do exactly that. She is the head of U.S. equities at Aviva Investors in Chicago. Her name is Susan Schmidt. Susan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. And Susan, I I think for this week, the most important question, obviously, is did you have any embarrassing nicknames in high school? Of course, that's the most important. He's just hoping I can take the heat off. Exactly, exactly. 
But no, I have not made any mispriced uh, wager here. So no, I have not. I have nothing to disclose. On that. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. Will she share it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. I guess. I guess I, uh, I. I made my own bed here. I have to lie in it. But uh, Susan, I mean, obviously, once again this week, the the big story for equities is uh, the sideshow of the bond market. Uh, rates spiking up on Thursday again above. 1.5% in the 10 year. Um, I suppose Jerome Powell did not give the market what it was hoping for. I, I don't know what exactly they were expecting out of him. Maybe some sort of hint at uh, a quote unquote operation twist or, or yield curve control. But how do you sort of explain uh, what Powell did on Thursday? And did he sort of miss the boat? Or I'm kind of of the opinion that taking a little froth out of the market is not necessarily uh, something he's against. I mean, he can always go out and give, give another speech next week if this one didn't work. But w- w- what do you think? What's your, your take on rates and equities and Jerome Powell's speech this week? Well, what is happening with rates and equities? So we're seeing a lot of angst and it's the push me, pull you market because rates go up. Should equities go down? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? If rates are going up because we expect more growth, that's actually a really good thing. And so as we're seeing the 10-year approach 1.5% and now safely there all all of this week, I think the equity market's having a hard time figuring out whether that is going to suppress growth or if that just represents the optimism that the market has and the achievable optimism and goals that we have for the economy as it rolls out with the vaccine over the next 18 months. I think Powell's statement was pretty interesting because he has been so consistent in his messaging that he is going to support the economy throughout. And the market is always waiting for him to say something slightly different, take a new variation, take a new tack on that take a new track on that. And he hasn't. And I think today was more of the same. He's still saying he's there to support the economy. He's not doing any big changes. He's going to let this volatility continue. The high end of that long, the high end at the long end of the curve isn't scaring him at all. He's not backing off and the Fed's going to continue to stay the course. So I think the market has to absorb that. There's so many moving parts in the equity markets right now that it's really hard to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. So like you said, and and Jerome Powell has said himself that what we are seeing in the bond market is a quote unquote statement of confidence in the growth outlook. And I I find it interesting on on Thursday uh, when Powell was giving his speech, one of my colleagues, Viltana Heyrich, pointed out that on Twitter, hashtag stock market crash was trending on Twitter. And it's almost a bit ironic because at that point in time, you looked at the S&P 500 over the past couple of days. What? It was down three percent from a record. But of course, there are areas of the market that are seeing significant pain. You look at a company like Tesla, high growth companies, the Nasdaq down 10 percent. So well more. And it depends in which companies you are really investing in. It's been said over and over that higher yields, well, that's bad for valuations or high valuation companies, or that's bad for high growth companies. Can you walk us through the actual reasoning for that? Why is it that when rates rise, you see companies like this under pressure? I'm going to counter that with look at the Russell 2000 and look at where small caps are. So, well, yes, these big tech names that did very well in 2020 are down under pressure. At the same time, year to date, those Russell 2000 stocks, that index is up over 10 percent. So it's a a big conflict. And I think what you're seeing in the small cap names is the reaction to confidence in the forward growth. And so suddenly these small caps 
are where people feel comfortable investing when they feel comfortable about the economy going forward. We're seeing that index do really well. We're seeing assets come out of those big cap names, which were the safe havens for 2020, where people thought, okay, I know I'm going to get through this with these tech-heavy names. I'm going to stick here. Where's the biggest pressure when we see down days? It's in the NASDAQ, that tech-heavy index. So I think when people see rising rates, it's always interesting. Are they rising for the right reasons? What does that mean? And it has been a long time since we've seen rates rise in a gradual way where it hasn't led us into trouble. We had this happen when suddenly we had a pandemic. And the misstep before that was the Fed maybe raised rates a little too much. And the market had a conniption fit over that. So remember that the Fed had overshot slightly, had been easing. Then we get to the pandemic and rates had to drop to zero again. So now the market's adjusting to that. I think you have to look at the components of the market to see what's really moving. The fact that those small caps are doing well tells me that optimism over that overall growth in the economy and rates at 1.5% are actually positive. Rates are going up for the right reason. And that is the overall sentiment versus the other. You know, Susan, one of the, the more interesting things I read this week is uh, Citigroup has some sort of model. Don't ask me what's in it. Uh, it's a model. All right. But no one no one really knows. But they somehow look at relative value um, of cyclical uh, value and value stocks versus the, the growth and the big tech stocks that, that have led the way. And somehow they divine out a, a notion that the, the equity market is pricing in basically a 2.2% 10-year treasury yield. Um, and they're not necessarily saying the bond market is wrong. They're saying maybe the equity market's gotten ahead of itself um, with this rotation. And I think that's a that's something I think you always have to worry about in an environment like this. You know, you think, okay, last year earnings collapsed, the economy collapsed, the stock market rose what? The SP rose like 14%. I mean, is this the payback now? Uh, you know, are we basically coming back to, to a rational analysis of, of the market now, um, especially given what valuations have done? Um, and and is the rotation, you know, those two ideas, I'm curious what you think about. Have we pulled forward the returns uh, from from the earnings and economic rebound that we can expect this year? Did we pull them forward to last year, kind of like we pulled forward the tax cut gains to the previous year? And and it was a sort of a sell the news event when when we actually got them. Um, what's your thinking on that as far as the has the rotation got ahead of itself? And did the market get ahead of itself last year and, and sort of how that relates to how we can think of the rest of 2021? Well, I think it's the nature of the market to overshoot in both directions. And so certainly we saw a very strong year in 2020, also in 2019. So if you stack those numbers for the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ stocks were up almost 50 percent. When you look at that, you have to think that, all right, this is pretty frothy, especially when you're given a pandemic, the back half of that time frame. And the market probably is due for a little bit of a settling period and a pullback. Is the equity market too far ahead of itself? That's hard to say when you look at you know, 0% interest on the short end, longer term. That is really supportive for businesses. That should be supportive for their growth longer term. And that's a positive. The debate between growth and value, I think, really adds another complexity to the equation. I think the old monikers of growth and value aren't necessarily 
accurate anymore. And so how the indices divide themselves up to be a benchmark for growth or a benchmark for value, I like to look through and look into the details of that. A lot of times if you're in the value bench, it's just because you're paying a dividend. Uh, you might not be making any money. So at times as well. So it's a, it's a complicated and messy situation. We're fundamental bottoms up investors. We like companies that generate cash flow. A lot of the companies that are in those value indices are ones that we wouldn't even consider to own. So when you look at the market overall, you've got a couple of things going on back to, did we pull too much forward in equities or are we too fast in this rotation? We had a lot of emphasis on those safety play growth names last year. I think diversifying the portfolio is a natural progression of that. And so seeing money shift into more cyclical names is actually healthy for the market. And you're broadening out your base of what you're investing in, right? More business models are acceptable to investors. So I don't think we're too far ahead in that diversification. Valuation is a completely different story. And I think that is driven by what are my alternatives? And when you have interest rates still at very low levels, equities are a compelling place to be. The issue I think we have in today's market is you've got cross currents with the 10-year rate going up to 1.5. Asset allocators who aren't really looking at stock by stock, but overall asset classes, so fixed income or equities, are now looking at that 1.5% rate saying, your fixed income actually is okay for me to move part of my investments back into fixed income to get that secure rate. And they were almost all equity exposed as we went into year end 2020. Where else are they going to go? So I think we're also seeing that shift in asset allocation happen along with the diversification of the portfolios beyond just the growth tech names. You get those two together. And I think that's what's causing all of this noise in the market. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. We talk about this divergence that we've seen amidst this rotation, and I'm just looking at some of the numbers from the past month or so, just looking at sectors in the S&P. Energy up 19%. Meanwhile, consumer discretionary is down close to 10%. Financials up 6%. I mean, massive, massive gaps between different industries. And then you also have pretty wide gaps within equities within the industries. And I know we hear this over and over again, and you guys are fundamental bottoms-up stock pickers, but we've heard every year after year after year that this is going to to be the year of the stock picker. And Bank of America put out a report. Uh, the month of February was actually the best month for large cap active managers, active stock pickers since 2007. So would you say that what this shows is possibly the time is actually here and you can show the skill uh, that you have? I, I definitely think that's the case. But you're right. We're active stock pickers. What else are we going to say? 
Some honesty, finally. <laughs> I know, let's be honest. We, we believe it. It's why we do what we do. But I, I do think that you're going to see some of that come through because there's so much uncertainty in the market. And I do think if you go forward a couple of months, you can get a lot of economic noise. You know, year over year comparisons aren't going to make any sense because a year ago, things were nowhere. We closed down the economy. We put everything on pause. And so it. I think that is somewhat what Chairman Powell was alluding to on Thursday. He's saying that, you know, he's not going to be distressed by some really wacky numbers because that may not necessarily be the true picture as you roll forward into what's happening. And I think that's where investors need to remember year over year data and some of these top headline numbers. You really need to look into the componentry of it because those top headline numbers may not be revealing the true picture of things. And I'm laughing. At, and by honesty, I mean, for that phrase of the year of the stock picker, I think it's been the year of the stock picker every year I've been doing yeah. this, which is longer than I care to remember, I will tell you. I think the year after John Bogle came out with that first index fund, someone was like, that's good, but this is the year of the stock picker this year. <laughs> but I want to go back to what you guys are looking at right now, because you mentioned earlier on in the show that when you look at some broad value indices, they include some companies that you guys wouldn't even be interested in investing in. And right now, it seems as though we are seeing energy rise at least 1% every single day. Uh, financials also getting a boost as we see yields rise as well. Would you say, though, that it's not as easy as just saying, all right, I, I want to buy energy companies at large? Because, of course, I mean, energy is a sector that, that's had a, a lot of hardship of late. Energy is a boomer bust sector. You either love <laughs> it or you hate it. And that really just depends on the day. And so it's, it's tough to be out of energy when it's working because it works well, aggressively well. And when it's terrible, it's really terrible. You don't want to be anywhere near it. So in the market today, what you're seeing is a lot of control going on in energy. The OPEC announcement that came out on Thursday is interesting, right? Because it's telling you that there is still going to be suppression of supply. There's going to be control in that supply-demand balance. And so you're seeing a lot of price support. And I think that that is what has been encouraging the market. At the same time, even before this came into play with, with Thursday's decision, you saw the market recognizing that there's going to be future growth. Therefore, we're going to have increased demand for energy. And that baseline price of oil has been rising. So all of those, you know, I think in this case, mean a swing in energy, which is working in the right direction. And as an investor, you want to have some exposure to that. At the same time, always in the back of your mind when energy is working, you have to be thinking about when does this stop because it will quickly reverse and go the other way. All right. And perhaps if it goes too high, it becomes a headwind to your, your consumer and retail uh, stocks. You know, and I wonder how, I mean, because it, boy, talk about a dramatic move in oil. Uh, not as dramatic as last year when it went negative, but you know, I don't know how you <laughs> compute the, the year over year change from a negative number. I'll have to, I'll get one of my daughters who's stuttering calculus to figure that out for me. But, but it brings up the whole notion of, of commodity inflation. I mean, it, it, oil's front and center, but we've seen lumber go nuts. Uh, you know, the, the, the industrial metals, um, that all sort of input pricing uh, to a lot of uh, stocks out there. Um, how do you separate the good inflation from the bad uh, in an environment like this? I mean, could could yeah the you know the yields are up because of the the outlook for growth, um, but could inflation bite some sectors? Do you think this year? 
Well, is it short-term inflation or long-term inflation? Because I think that this year, that's what you have to worry about. We've certainly got some supply constraints. And I think those supply lines are what is going to feel some, what will feel pressure. We have issues where, again, you're comparable is a pandemic. People actually shut down. We asked everyone to go on pause. Inventory lines have been depleted. And so as people ramp back up, these businesses come back to life. They do need raw materials being pulled through the pipeline, and they're not always readily available. We're also seeing a boom in certain industries, lumber, look at housing. So, you know, we've had this great boom in housing suddenly where everyone wants to find a house. We don't have enough houses. And so they're working on supply. That's an issue for lumber. Short term, is that supply line going to continue to be constrained? Probably for a couple months. But I think longer term, I actually think you have to watch how those supply channels come back online. If they're functioning normally, longer term, you shouldn't see that kind of constraint. And therefore, your short-term inflation actually can ease out into consistent long-term growth. You know, I was really curious about what uh, the terminal would say about that percent change in oil, Mike. So <laughs> if you pull up a chart on the terminal, there's a way that you could annotate the chart and you basically just draw a line from one point to the next and it'll tell you yeah. either their percent gain or the percent loss. It just says gain in parentheses. There's no numbers. So <laughs> <laughs> the Bloomberg terminal won't even calculate it for you, I guess. It does the shruggy man <laughs> emoji, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but put this all together for us then. Where do you guys actually see opportunity then right now? Well, back to the great lineup. It's a stock picker's market. <laughs> Go back to fundamentals. We are looking for a big reopening trade. And I'm looking for opportunity in names that are going to benefit from that. It's interesting because even anecdotally, you can look across and I'm sure everyone has friends who have been cooped up this entire time and are itching to go out. Right. They, I'm based in Chicago. Chicago restaurants have opened up. They're at 25% capacity. But you can go out and go to a restaurant. You can even sit outside and go to a restaurant. And mind you, we're in Chicago and it's the winter. So <laughs> people are still willing to do that. If you want to go out, you can't get a reservation. Things are booking up and maybe you can eat at 5 p.m. or you can eat at 9 p.m. But there's nothing in between. It's the same in New York. People want to get out. And I, I think that shows you there's this pent up demand and back to the $1,400 check that's going in consumers pockets. Consumers have a very strong balance sheet right now. And so when you look at it, they have stored that up. Savings rates are at all time highs. They've been very good about managing to get through this pandemic. And I think once things open up, I think you are going to see a big flurry of consumer activity. And with that, I think you get opportunity of looking for the company's name services, especially that are going to benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah. The personal savings rate was just through the roof there for, for many months. I mean, it's uh, it's a fascinating uh, setup. But, you know, Susan, obviously, I think everyone is still bullish. Maybe not everyone, but um, it makes a lot of sense to still be bullish on that reopening trade, I think. But then you look at that stay-at-home trade, and boy, there's some of the just, I think, over the long term, really some of the, the most intriguing stocks, uh, you know, around Facebook's not going anywhere, Google's not going anywhere, Netflix, Zoom, uh, you know, is not going anywhere. When do you sort of know when to go, when to revert back to the the darlings of of the, you know, former era of the of the bull market? You know, what what would you sort of 
look for to to ring that bell and say, okay, everyone switch partners again and go back to the to the big tech companies? Well, the market is always looking forward, and so I think once you get into the the true full on belief that the reopening is coming and it's here, right? So we're starting to see that. Then I think once again, investors are looking for the next opportunity and where will growth be priced in? And they're trying to even themselves out. And at that point, right, we always see this flow of money chasing areas that they think are going to are, are going to work in the future, but might right now be underinvested in. And so you're gonna see that swing back because as we go towards the reopening, everyone's looking at the cyclicals. As we get to the reopening, people are going to go back to growth at a reasonable price. What's going to do well? I think the pandemic was most interesting because it took a lot of those market darlings and stocks that weren't necessarily market darlings, but might have been in the tech space in some way and pushed them to the forefront because the pandemic forced this adoption of technology and means of operating that to, to a new level where the uptake was much higher than it would have been otherwise. So a lot of these technologies got pulled into every household. That might not have happened without the pandemic circumstance for another decade. My grandparents are using Amazon to shop. They had no idea what that was a year ago. And now they think they're the coolest thing ever. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to see that because it did allow a lot of those companies to leapfrog forward and get traction in society and actually become part of people's normal behaviors so that they're now entrenched. And I think we'll see, of course, that being rewarded as the world shifts back to normalcy. And you're going to have some new players that have moved into the normal day to day. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Mike, I am uh, I'm happy to say, I know you are not happy to hear me say that I think it's that time of the show. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right. All right. Well, it is that time. Let's do the crazy things before we get to my crazy nickname. I, uh, I'm I'm uh, procrastinating. Build on this it up. As, Build as it up. As, as you won't get away without sharing right, it today. Right. Well, I'll kick it off on the crazy things here. Um, this crazy thing combines... Two of my favorite things. For, for one thing, Sarah, I'm starting to think that people are just out there doing things in hopes of, of getting featured in the crazy things segment. I might be a little narcissistic on my part, but 
I'm sure there's some truth to that. If you can come up with a better explanation for non non fungible tokens, then I'll I'll hear it. But <laughs> until I hear otherwise, I think they are just trying to get featured in this segment. So this one, this is a story courtesy of CBSNews.com, and it combines two of my favorite crazy things: uh, NFT, non fungible tokens, and ridiculously overpriced modern art. Um, and one of my favorite modern artists is this guy Banksy. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's most famous. You've mentioned him on the show before. Yeah, I've got, we, we, get, we get to him a lot. He's most famous for selling the painting that self-shredded the minute the auctioneer hit, hit the gavel down, which is one of my all-time <laughs> favorites. What a great piece that was. Right? Uh, oh, it was brilliant. The best right. picture of all time would have actually been if they'd had a camera facing, how he could have done that better, right? If he'd had a camera in the frame facing the audience to watch everyone. <laughs> I know, I know. They should have. <laughs> my favorite part was, I forgot what auction house it was, Christie's or Sotheby's or one of them. And they said to the person, look, we'll refund you your money. And the person was like, no way. This thing's worth even more now that it's shredded. So that, that's amazing. That's where he we knew are what there. he was getting into. Yeah. So enter into this uh, story, a blockchain company known as Injective Protocol. They bought not a Banksy original, a print, a signed print for ninety five thousand dollars. And they immediately burned it on Twitter. And the reason they did that is because they had made a digital replication of it, which they had turned into a non-fungible token on the blockchain, presumably making it worth much more than the 95000 they paid for it. Yeah, what, what multiple do you get if you turn a Banksy photograph or art piece into an NFT? I, we, we need... <laughs> No offense to you, Susan, but we need a, an NFT picker to, to, to come on the show. <laughs> yeah, I can't begin to touch that one. Yeah. That makes no sense to me at all. So. It's, it's pretty good. But I will say this. I would not mess with Banksy. You know, when he hears about this, his next you know thing might be to burn down the blockchain as, as his next <laughs> as his next feat. So I uh, that's that's my craziest thing. Susan, you got anything for us? Well, my after that, what can compete with that? But, <laughs> That really, I, I think that really takes the cake. I did hear, I got a couple things. So, you know, there was some price action in Rocket Mortgage that I thought was really interesting. When you see the Reddit crowd gang up on, when you see the Reddit crowd gang up on the small cap names, like GameStop, where you can get those minnows all grouping together to make a wave, that makes sense to me. But when you get into something like Rocket Mortgage, where the market cap is much, much higher, and yet you see some wave happen that, shoots the price up and it causes this dislocation in the shares. That was really surprising to me. And so I think it's a, a warning that the mechanism is out there. You can see volatility, short-term volatility in a lot of places that you didn't expect. So keep that in the back of your mind when you start to see some really irrational price movement. You know, and I then think, I'll throw I think in given how much those guys like the rocket emoji, I think that that was inevitable. I mean, the, kicking myself for not seeing that one coming. Yeah, I uh, I just looked up call volume in, in Rocket. So more than a million, well, more than 1.1 million call options traded that day that we saw the spike. Before that, the previous high was not even 375,000. So really, really getting into the, those options. <laughs> so then I got one other thing to throw in front of you, which is uh, a, an ETF that was launched that I heard about called the Buzz ETF. <laughs> Which I think is is great, but it, it it really shows you how important social media has become. And so here's this ETF that is going to track the performance of stocks 
as the, the stocks that are most mentioned in social media, right, on the web. And, and so I think that basically says it all about where Americans are spending their time and a different way to really, you know, take a, a creative way to take a look and think about tracking consumer preferences. That's pretty good. Yeah. The, the famous Davey Day Trader, Dave Portnoy, who would have thought he'd be the most influential? <laughs> exactly. Who would have thought? And he'd be pushing uh, ETFs named Buzz. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and it probably comes with pizza or cookies. Or <laughs> yeah. right? so. That's pretty good. I like both of those. Those are good. Those are good. How about you, All Sarah? Right. What do you, you, so, you got some stiff competition this week. I do. I do. I'm going to bring it back to SPAC world because really at the midst of the sell up, we've been seeing SPACs have really been tied up in it. Uh, if you look at a SPAC index, it's down about 20% now from the high. But what's crazy to me were some numbers that were put out by Goldman Sachs, and I'll just read them to you. So in the first two months of this year, 175 SPACs uh, sold IPOs or roughly five deals per trading day. Well, now in February, so just last month alone, 90 SPACs raised $32 billion, which was a monthly record. And should the pace of issuance persist, this year's offerings will surpass the full year of 2020 before the end of this month. And 2020 was a obviously a record year for SPACs. So the fact that we are going to pass that within the first three months of 2021 is um, pretty crazy. That is pretty crazy. What's your take on SPACs, Susan? Well, down 20% yeah. recently in, in recent days, I think uh, gives you a good indicator of how much froth was in that market. And it, it does seem to be the new craze from a company's perspective. It actually is a nice, convenient way to backdoor into being publicly traded. But from an investor's perspective, you're taking a huge bet if you're moving into a SPAC where you do it's basically just here, I'm giving you a blank check, go for whatever you want. You don't know what they're going to buy. You don't know which direction it's going in. And you hope that they end up buying something that is equivalent with the strengths of the management team or the leadership that they have around the SPAC. They don't have to. And I think we've seen examples where they could go into something completely different than you expect because it's not going to behoove them to give you your money back. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, if that Portnoy guy doesn't start a SPAC, he's a big missed opportunity here. It's like pizza, pizza and meme acquisition uh, opportunities. <laughs> the stool SPAC. Yeah. I don't know if that but, sounds so great. But. <laughs> but Sarah, with that said, I think that's it for today. I think that's everything we no, had to talk no, about. No, no, that's no, no. That's entirely... One item still outstanding, isn't there, Sarah? Susan's holding you to it. Uh, it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, dr uh, drum roll, please. I guess if if uh, we'll have the producer out a drum roll. All right. So as I hinted, uh, this this nickname uh, was like my more flattering nickname was granted to me on the basketball court, and so I went. I went, I have to give you a long backstory for this, I'm afraid, but uh, I, I think the, the 60, 60 people that rated the show deserve the, the full story. So I went to a public grade school, but then I went to a Catholic high school, which had a, a good basketball reputation. It's not like one of these basketball factories today, but they had won a state championship. So I was excited to play. I, I made the team, but I, here I was this public school guy coming on the team and basically 
of the Catholic grade schools that fed into the team, the starting five from that best team was like, we're, we're the team for high school. We don't need this new guy from, from public school. So there's a bit of hazing that went on. Um, and again, I'm like 15 years old. This is 1980 <laughs> or something. And uh, I did something dorky. I don't know what it is. And one guy on the team who was wearing a retainer, I will, I will point out. And you know how hard it is to get bullied by a kid with a retainer who's it talking funny? makes it funny? all the more difficult for you. Yeah. And he said, oh, he's a dork, something like that. Except he was wearing a retainer and it sounded like he said, he's a stork. And Sarah, the, so the, some guy, other guy on the team said, did you just call him Stork? And Sarah, this is where your, your lack of old man movie knowledge comes into play, because there's a character in, the, in a great old man movie called Animal House, which you probably haven't seen. Uh, I know Animal House. You've seen Animal House. All right. Yeah. So Animal House, you know, it was a, meant to be a comedy, but for guys of my uh, generation, it was like a how-to video. Like, this is how we thought life in college was supposed to be lived. So if you're ever wondering why like <laughs> me and Chris Nagy and your boss, Jeremy, aren't quite as sharp as your generation, that that explains it all. I'm sure that's the reason. Yeah. But Stork was like the nerdiest character, like predated Revenge of the Nerds, another old man movie. He had the tape on his glasses. He only had like two lines and he, he was clearly the, the dorkiest character in film history up, up to that point. Um, and so that, Nickname only the guys on the basketball team would call me that. And like if some girl in the lunchroom overheard this, she'd be like, why do they they call you Stork? And I'd say, well, it's kind of embarrassing, but but I've been known to steal the ball and go coast to coast. And I, I fly to the basket like a beautiful <laughs> you bird. Had to, you had to make some and, story. And I, lay, I lay the ball in the net the same way a Stork gently lays a baby in the cradle. And that. Yeah, this yeah. is really well thought through. I'm it, was, say. it was a very good cover, Mike. Yeah. It was very and it good didn't cover. work because then some other guy from the team would show up and say, "No, nah, that's not true. It's that's not true. That's not it." But here's what's interesting. So I finally Googled this character. I was like, "Who played this character? Anything? What's what's the deal with this guy?" Fascinating story about the guy who played it, um, which really has redeemed it. This nickname for me, and I'm I'm fine with it now because he's actually the guy who wrote the movie. His name's Douglas Kenny. He, oh, wow. Yeah. He founded the uh, the magazine National Lampoon, which was like a huge deal to old guys like me back in the day. A, a, a really funny magazine. He also wrote Caddyshack or helped write it. Him and Harold Ramis, uh, another actor, helped to write Caddyshack and Animal House. Uh, sadly, he died a tragic death where he fell off of a mountain in Hawaii. But um, oh, wow. before that, he was he was he was doing pretty good. So I'm all right with that. You know, it's. One of the most influential characters in uh, writers in the old man movie genre, which back then we just called them movies, but they are uh, clearly. Well, I don't think the other players on the basketball team were really thinking that through when they called you Stork. <laughs> they but were not. again, great turnaround on your part. Yeah, life, life is what you make it. Positive. Exactly. Yeah. I love right. that. And and that is, if only you'd known that when you were talking to the girls in the lunchroom, oh. because you could have spun out the tail and like, look, they uh, need me after this guy and look at how much he did. Uh, I know. I wouldn't have had to take my sister to the prom after all. No, I'm, I'm did not. <laughs> Honestly, Mike, Stork is an honorable nickname. Everyone who rated to hear this nickname I'm sure they'll be really happy to hear it. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, the, but, 200, the 200 reviews are, that are out there, they now have earned every word written because look at the information that that brought forth. 
But Sarah, let's practice here, though. If someone hears about this nick nickname but hadn't listened to this episode, how are you, how are you going to explain how I got that nickname? That Mike used to fly to the hoop when he played basketball. That's it. That's why you're. That's why you're my favorite. <laughs> of course, colleague Sarah. Thank you. Of course. Oh wow, I'm gonna have to tell everyone you just said that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Vildana. She'll be okay, I, I won't tell Vildana. Right. But um, now we're gonna have to come up with something else to get more readings gimmick, yeah. on the show. Maybe so, it's Susan's nickname. We, we can, uh, <laughs> maybe Susan's nickname. Le Mine's under wraps. Mine's under wraps. So. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll also put out there if if. Anyone listening to the podcast has anything that they want to know about the podcast, the show, about Mike or I, let us know. Maybe we'll make that the next uh, gimmick, as Mike would call it. But um, <laughs> Susan Schmidt, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Always great to talk to you guys. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.